you should always have a mentor. I think mentors are also temporary. And, and I think that kind of scares some people a little bit like, well, I'm really good friends with my mentor. You mean I can't talk to them anymore? No, that's not it at all. It's that your mentor is likely going to serve a purpose or a job and get you to that level, but they may not be able to take you to the next level after that. And so it's okay to seek out mentors to help you solve a particular problem and then to seek out more mentors after you've solved that problem. So if I look back, you know, hindsight, I don't think I would have gotten to where I am now without multiple mentors along that way. What's up, everyone? Paramified Podcast, Keaton, Blake. Thank you for having me. Blake Interkin, a good friend of mine, currently a hacker one. Yeah, we go way back. Way back, way back. Thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Pleasure to be with you guys. Yeah, man. So tell me, so Blake, you, you've you got a pretty interesting uh, career tra- trajectory getting into cyber. Take us back to the beginning. Okay. How you got into it. Like, Yeah. Uh, so I always knew I wanted to be in technology. It, it wasn't always security. That wasn't on my radar, but I knew I wanted to be in tech from like the age of 12. Uh, when we, I, somebody gave us a computer and it was, this is so funny. Somebody gave us a computer and it didn't work. And I didn't know this at the time, but my mom later was like, yeah, well, who gives you a computer that doesn't work? You know? Anyways. So I ended up fixing it at like 12. I, it was something dumb. It wasn't, it wasn't even that big a deal. Like you had to replug in the mouse, I think. And so I figured that out and was like, Oh, maybe this is a thing, right? Like maybe, maybe the, I have a skill here. My very, yeah, my very first act. But that was really helpful for me because then from there on out, I always wanted to be in tech. So fast forward, I'm in college to get my undergrad in IT. And I had a boss who was also a mentor of mine that was just really passionate about security. He was, he was going through a master's program in security at the time, which was just very new. And he would tell me about it. We shared an office. And so he'd be reading some course material or he'd be reading an article and he'd be like, hey, Blake check this out. And so we'd have a conversation about it. And that's what started the passion. And it was great because in my undergrad, you could specialize. You didn't have to change your major, but you could specialize in a certain field. So like databases, you could specialize in IT with an emphasis in databases or security. And so I was like, well, maybe I should emphasize in that and see if, if this is an interest. And so I did. And that's how I got into it and loved it. And then this mentor later became one of my adjunct professors. So he was like, my boss, my mentor, and my professor all at the same time. Kevin Kevin Young. He was he was fantastic. I love Kevin. Oh yeah, that's right. We worked at yeah, you worked with Kevin at Adobe. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, it's kind of a so you should talk about that program then. So it was UVU. Yeah, I was at UVU. Yeah. I think one of the Yeah, so one of the best signals that a program is worth its salt is like you you have students that are like really passionate about the field you're Totally. Because totally. let's face it, your whole goal with college is to learn how to learn. Yeah. You know, hopefully. Um, and you want to become like a knowledge pig, right, in the, right. In the area that you're at. And that, that's what kind of really opens doors. So that's awesome. So Yeah, and the program itself was really interesting. So I didn't know this at the time because it was my only intro, but 
a lot of universities, you do two years of just generals and then you apply into your program and, and you may not, you may not get in, right? Because there's this very competitive and people are you know, trying to get in. And so some people are going to get rejected and have to go to like their second or third choice. That was not the case with UVU. You could immediately from freshman year matriculate into your program. And so that was unique because every semester I took half of like my technology classes and half general eds. So if like my general eds were really interesting to me, sometimes my tech weren't. I was like, okay, I know what an IP address is. Like we, we, we can fast forward this. And, but my general eds were really interesting. And then some semesters, my generals, I was like, okay, this is, this is a lot. But my, the tech would keep me going. So it was a great experience. And then as well, specific to UVU, there were a lot of working full-time students there. And so you'd have these recruiters come and like, hey, we have this internship. And we'd all kind of look around like, uh, we all have full-time jobs because they were very accommodative to the working student. And so you had a lot of working people already who when they graduated, they're like, well, I'm just going to go to my full-time job. I just don't have class anymore. Was it my situation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Where you're almost like, cool, so I'm done and I just work full-time? Like, uh, that's it? I just go back to my job, you know? And so it, it, it was a very interesting dynamic for sure. That really is an interesting model with uh, with colleges because those first two years, you have a lot of burnout. Like, ah, like what is the value I'm getting out right. of this? right. And then I can't even imagine, like, for me, if I hadn't got into IT, I mean, I'm confident that I probably would have. But if I hadn't gotten in, I don't know what I would have done. Like, I don't know what, I didn't have to worry about that. That wasn't on top of mind for me because it was just like, hey, you're in. That makes a ton of sense. And then you eventually, you did a master's degree, right? I did at BYU. Yeah. Okay, cool. And that's where I began to hear about, like, we would share stories about our undergrad and they were very different from mine. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah. And, so, you know, some people from my junior core who didn't get into this program or whatever. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. Okay, got it. That's cool. I mean, that kind of makes a lot of sense to me because I knew you. I'm like, wow, Blake's really passionate about security. And I'm like, man, I think a lot of this stuff sucks. But I was doing, <laughs> I was doing like the worst part of security, which is like documenting stuff. Yeah. And most people are like, oh, there's Kenny. Don't let him see me. <laughs> but all these, like his team, they're like really passionate about solving uh, really hard problems, right? So that's cool. That's, yeah. That's good to get that background on you, man. Thanks. For sure. Yeah. So you mentioned mentor, like your mentor, Kevin. So uh, how does mentorship play a role in your career, right? Even today, right? So oh, yeah. talk about mentors. Uh, I think mentors are so important. Uh, I think... At any stage in your career, you should always have a mentor. I think mentors are also temporary. And and I think that kind of scares some people a little bit. Like, well, I'm really good friends with my mentor. You mean I can't talk to them anymore? No, that's not it at all. It's that your mentor is likely going to serve a purpose or a job and get you to that level, but they may not be able to take you to the next level after that. And so it's okay to seek out mentors to help you solve a particular problem and then to seek out more mentors after you've solved that problem. So if I look back, you know, hindsight, I don't think I would have gotten to where I am now without multiple mentors along that way. So like 
my first mentor was a guy who uh, was a system administrator for an ISP. And my mom uh, ran a daycare out of her home and watched his kid. And around this time, I was telling you around age 12, kind of 13, 14, my mom realizes that I have this passion around computers, but she's like, I can't help him. I don't know computers. So she goes to Neil and says, this was, this was the mentor. Would you help my son build a computer, build his first computer? And Neil, to his credit, is like, of course, I'd be happy to. And so he walks me through the different components and here's how to build it. And that was it. And, and then when I had turned 16, Neil helped me get my first job as a tech support rep at this ISP. And so, which I would not have, I mean, then a 16 year old kid interviewing to be a tech support rep, there was no way, but they took a chance. And I think it was because of Neil and that's how I got in. So that was one mentor. I had another mentor in high school, uh, who was my, uh, computer teacher taught programming. Uh, he was great. And then Kevin in college, and then you just go through and there's like, even my boss today, uh, I consider a mentor. Uh, and, and I was that was one of the reasons why I took the job with Hacker One. is I said, hey, I want to be where you are. You've done some really cool things. Are you willing to help me get to that next level someday? And he was like, absolutely. So That's amazing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, being a leader, it's really easy to be like, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of weird. When you ask somebody for help, um, they like you more. It's <laughs> so weird. You'd be like, hey, I'm really working on this. I'm like, man, I really like that them because they're coming to me and asking for help. So yeah. Well, and I'm sure some of it too is like a little confidence booster is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You hey. want my help, right? Like, are you serious? I don't know. I mean, what, what is, what is the experience for you guys? Like totally. I mean, absolutely is the same. I mean, we have our parents, right? Mom and dad get us to somewhere that, that we need to be. But then there's also, you know, there's that whole phrase, it takes a village, right? Yeah. And we had that's one of our maxims at Paramify. It takes a it takes a village to raise a security program. There's not one person yeah. that can do it. So there's so much to learn from everybody. I think once you think that you know everything, that's really dangerous, right? And yes. that's where your growth stops. So totally. it's really great to 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 be uncomfortable and to push yourself and to learn new things. And it's it's nice to have a guide. So yes, because the growth is not, it's not comfortable. Oftentimes it's uncomfortable. So having somebody who's maybe been there and is like, okay, here's what to expect going into this. You're going to run into these things. Here's kind of how you deal with them or find your own way. Um, but yeah, I, I always recommend people. I'm like, if you don't have a mentor, find one. Yeah, absolutely. On the business side. Um, so one of my mentors is Craig Tusher and he was, uh, he was the founder of Volterra. Oh, cool. Talked about his experience starting Volterra. So he's this, uh, he was 31 years old. He was the oldest of all the founders. And so he was the main guy for, for Volterra at the time. So Volterra helps manage power to, um, to uh, motherboards. Yeah. And, and so a uh, really challenging problem, a really expensive problem in the semiconductor area. And so Craig, uh, uh, he had four other founders with him they were raising money because their idea was awesome and they were they were the right people to kind of build a product, but they had no idea how to run a company. So it's really cool to hear Craig's story about how what he did was he he found somebody who was like a veteran 
in the industry to be the CEO. So this was someone who had less equity than the founding group, but but he was paid more, right? And they all reported to him. And the whole purpose was help us get to the next level. So they all hired uh, different different uh, uh, different mentors, yeah. you know, to kind of help grow that company. And that was a smashing success. That's awesome. And, and good for them because like that can be a tough decision. I'm sure you know, right? As a founder slash CEO, that can be a tough decision on, okay, do I learn and grow and develop from mentors? Do I bring in a seasoned CEO and kind of turn over some of those reins? So yeah, I think that's really interesting. It, it really is. It really is. You don't, yeah, you just don't know. You have yeah. no idea what the future holds. So it's great to have someone with experience. I mean, in our business, Tyler, uh, he he's a, an amazing founding engineer, right? And as soon as we ran into some of the other issues that with Paramify's growth, he's like, oh, we need some help. And so it was cool to see the humility, have him step aside and have someone who has that experience and wants to help him grow yeah. to that to that yeah yeah yeah. can't say enough good things about tyler he's he's awesome shout out tyler yeah shout out to tyler i have to say just for me um one of the most valuable experiences for me with being on the team with paramify is receiving mentorship from say you kenny tyler mike adam all four of these guys we have so much from it and i've said this since the beginning it's like more valuable to me than college, I would say. Yeah. I just, yeah. I get that. And, and I feel like it, once you've had really good mentors, your desire to want to be a mentor or like going back to your point of like, if somebody came to me, I would instantly think of the people that helped me and go, Hey, I would be happy to, to help you. These are the things I can help you with. These are probably the things I, I wouldn't be able to help you with. You know, they're not my strengths or whatever. But you just want to kind of, it's infectious, right? Like you want to pass it on because you think, oh, yeah, I remember. I was in your shoes and somebody said yes to me. So 100% I'll help you, you know? I like that about kind of the whole security industry, how tight-knit it is, especially here in Utah. It's oh <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Ah, oh my gosh. It's it's amazing. And they're good people. And they recognize that they're going to be specialists in certain areas. And uh, they're always going to be referring each other. We just had, it was interesting, we had Josh Barron on the podcast a little bit ago in a different studio. And uh, he he's a lawyer, and he runs a law practice. And so one of the things he said is that he's focused 100% on referrals. And so he has a network. He has this cadre of you know, people that he trusts and he gives referrals to this, to this certain person. Yeah. Right. And if they don't, if they don't, if they don't, uh, respond, okay. right. If they don't respond and like follow up on that referral that he gives them, he, he's like, I'm never again. He's like, it's one strike and you're out Yeah, because it's just so important that you kind of build that network of people. And so yeah. eventually your mentors become your partners. Right. You know, and so you could be like, you know, who helped me with this. You'd be like Kevin or like, you know, who helped me with this, you know, this person. Right. He knows all about that. So it's really important. Those relationships that you build, that's everything, not only in security and building your role, but it's in business. It's everything. And it's what makes it fun, man. Relationships are what it's about. You mentioned that, you know, the the 
the security community in Utah is pretty tight knit. And there's a, a, there's a group and there's multiple groups around the country that I've heard that do this, but there's a group in Utah called Salt Lake CISO. Yeah. Basically, if you're the senior most leader within your company and you're in Utah, you're a member of this group and they do regular get togethers. And so, and I'm a member as well. And I go, but you know, I'm supposed to be peers with these people, but yet some of them, I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, you have done so much, you're doing so much and being able, again, that mentorship and being able to ask them questions is just so helpful. And all these guys um, and gals are just so more than willing to like give you their knowledge and, and answer those questions. I can't think of anybody who's like, oh no, I don't have time for that. They're more than willing to just be like, oh yeah, here's how we do it. And here's how I think you should do it. It's just been great. Yeah. So for example, there's a lot of great stuff in security. It's interesting. It's a dynamic field. There's all sorts of new threats all the time. Yes. But there's a lot of stuff that sucks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. We we know about it, right? So, you know, um with without, you know, when you run into those roadblocks, right, with the things that suck again. You have that mentor. So what are some of the things that you wish would just go away <laughs> in terms? You know, they're not going to go away, but what are some of the things that are you think common in most security groups? So I think one of the dysfunctions within the security and compliance realm is that we generally have this reputation of saying no and not putting our business hat on and thinking through maybe why somebody is asking us of something. Can I get approval to do this? Is this a risk? Uh, wh why can't we do this, right? And I run into that a lot in my career because I feel like I'm coming into an organization where maybe the person, person whose role I am taking on, like they're exiting, I'm coming in, that people are reacting to me within an organization, they're already like, okay, I know you're probably going to say no to this question, but what do you think about this, right? And I'm like, uh, I mean, it sounds fine. What's the problem? And you're kind of like, wait, what? Uh, where, where, you know, they, they assume that you're just going to get upset at them. You're going to tell them all the reasons why you can't do something. I think ultimately security and compliance are in the business of, declaring risk here is the risk of doing what you want to do and maybe it's a low risk and you're like it doesn't really seem like that big of a deal or maybe it is a higher risk and you have to call that out okay here's the reasons why this is maybe not a good idea here are some reasons why this is a good idea and here's some maybe some things we can do to mitigate some of the high risk stuff that you're not always going to be able to do that but i think I think security and compliance need to look at it more of, okay, how can I enable the business, not disable the business? And I think that's where experience really comes in to play because humans in general are really bad at measuring things, especially risk, right? We talk about that all the time. We're so bad at it. And so it's nice to be a partner with the business when you can say, oh yeah, I've, I've run into this problem before. This is how we did it in a way that didn't suck, right? In a way that was a little bit more frictionless for the business, right? 
because you want to make it easy for them to do the right thing as a security professional, which, you know, at the end of the day, I, and now I know even more than ever how much security is a feature, right? It is, it is absolutely a feature, you know, that needs to be built in at the very beginning to your products. When you, security people, we understand what like implementing um, a tool looks like and we, we can see it, but uh, from the business side, you don't see it, right? It's something that you don't see. You shouldn't see it. It should be invisible. So for example, enabling FIPS mode on on different endpoints, that's nothing you're going to see, but when it's not set correctly, you're going to be like, it's not working, great. Like, right. And so people get mad, like security, they're messing up everything. Or, you know, in, instituting CIS level two benchmarks, you know, that's nothing you see. Right. It's just simply there. And and you need to be able to move quickly to build features like we do. We have to be able to build things quickly. How do you do that in a secure way? So it's not an easy thing to do. It's not. No. I think to your point, it definitely it requires some experience to say, I've been there. That wasn't that big a deal. Like we figured it out. I think another uh dysfunction maybe of security is that it it can be viewed as a cost sink and i look at it more as an opportunity to help drive the business like it can be a value add um i mean we're you know hacker one we're a security company and so we're security company right we're we're always like looking for for ways that we within security though we are a security company can help drive the business and enable the business and make things more streamlined and easier. And so, you know, when somebody comes in and says, well, do you do all these things? We do those things and more. And they're like, oh, great. Okay. Uh, next, next question. Like, let's move on that. We, we got what we need. It's a great point. Security. We talk about this Keaton a lot in our little, Hey, Kenny, yeah, that's little thing. Right. <laughs> well, we talk about this a lot. Security is not a technology problem. It is a strategy problem. Sure. At the very beginning. And so uh, what's good for the business is usually good for security and vice versa. Um, today, I, I read some article uh, about uh, someone from the UK. It, you know, a lot of the articles are fear, uncertainty, doubt. Uh, but the level of sophistication with espionage, all all nation states spy. It's just the level is really raised, you know, in, in certain countries, right? And so security becomes not a nice to have. It's, it's a must to have. It's a day one feature, even for uh, startups. It used to be like, oh, yeah, when you get to Series E or you get to Series C, you know, yeah, maybe you can do your SOC 2 or you can, you know, but that's not, that's not what we're seeing now in procurement. It's like you need to have CIS level two benchmarks implemented. You need FIPS mode enabled. You need all of these things implemented. AC1 through SI16. Thank you very much. Let us know when you're done. Yeah. You need everything to be done now. So absolutely, it becomes a blocker if you don't have it. Yeah, I mean, you would have more experience, you know, with with just starting out. I imagine yeah. everybody's like, cool, Paramify sounds great. Do you have all these things? And you're like, you know, yep. we just started, right? And they're but, like, oh, that's nice. Well, let us know when you get them. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, no, well, 
And that's where it's nice to know today that there are so many tools already in place. You have all these sweet tools. You have Okta, you have HackerOne, you have CrowdStrike, whatever. You can go through the list and then even within AWS or within GCP or wherever you are, Azure, there's a lot of the tools that are in place. You just have to have the know-how to make sure you're taking advantage of the right things and not implementing in a stupid way. But there are like all sorts of zero trust uh, functions that you can implement on day one. You just have to know how to do it. So it's kind of nice to be able to just inherit that. You don't have to stand up a data center. You have all sorts of tools to kind of help you along your journey. But again, you need a guide. You need someone that can help you. You're not going to go on some like uh, backcountry ski uh, ski helicopter skiing thing and be like hey let's just go bro let's just <laughs> let's just do it <laughs> someone who doesn't ski to hey we're gonna go from zero to 100 you ready let's just <laughs> jump out of the helicopter let's just okay. try it let's see what happened yeah, yeah. what could go wrong yeah i think uh, like the the ease of deployment to your point on today's tools make that so much faster like when we're talking to smaller companies startups I am just blown away by how much they were able to accomplish at their stage to where it is kind of, you do get a little fearful of like, okay, they have this really good tool. The business really wants it, but I hope they have these things. And then you go into these conversations. We were talking to one the other day and like, I think at least one of the co-founders was a security person. It wasn't like a security tool, but the co-founder, his background was security. And he was like, oh yeah, we... We took, we knew that that was going to be a pain point. We took care of all this. Like, okay, all right, cool. All right. You passed the bar, like next phase. Right. So it's, it's so impressive to see what people are able to accomplish, like at this, at their stage. Yeah. hundred percent. I totally thought, forgot what I was going to say just now. Cause I was like, it was a, it was perfect. You got to imagine it was, a, it was so amazing. <laughs> but I can't yeah, 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 it would have been good. You can imagine if I said something cool to pull me off that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just cuts. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Okay, yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. It was, it was in that area, though. Go ahead, Keaton, you go, Keaton. Like, yeah, I would turn. love to hear from you a little bit about HackerOne and what yeah. you guys do. Yeah, so HackerOne was founded about a little over 10 years ago with this vision in mind of, we should make it easy for ethical hackers to report vulnerabilities with and with the hope in certain circumstances of being compensated for their efforts, right? And so that was, I think that was the overarching vision. And then, you know, 10 years later, here we are with a platform that connects those two groups. So ethical hackers with companies who want to receive those vulnerability submissions and take action on them because the the value proposition for them is the good guy found it before the bad guy and because if the bad guy finds it and exploits it it's going to be a lot more time and money and resources to address and and then you have these these ethical hackers who want to do good in the world and want to essentially be the immune system of the internet. And they really are, like if you think about it, right? They're finding that stuff and it's getting fixed all the time. So that's really hacker like hacker one's vision of like let's enable this immune system 
to take place um, and provide a good way to facilitate that. Um, you can do it on your own, and there are certainly companies out there that do it, but we take a lot of the challenges and headache out of that process, right? You say you're talking to startups. What what are What's the the most common use case for them coming in to use HackerOne for like startups? Well, in that in that particular scenario, I was talking about where we were wanting to purchase a solution from a startup. But yeah, our our customers range from yeah startups to large enterprise, right? And I think it's interesting. I think the startups are getting ahead of the wave. I and not to knock companies of other size, but I think they're going to play to what the standards are out there today. Here's what I'm beholden to from a control perspective. And this is new, and I'm sure we'll get into this with the Rev5 updates, but you're not seeing a lot of controls yet around bug bounty and vulnerability, VDP, or what we call vulnerability disclosure policies. Those are coming, so FedRAMP has one, PCI has one, but it hasn't kind of caught up with with the broader industry yet of you want to do this thing, but we are seeing startups who are wanting to get ahead of that. I, you know, like yourself, I have these large uh, customers that we're trying to sell to. They want to know that we're taking security seriously. And so we're going to get ahead of this and we're going to spin up our own program uh, and start getting these submissions. And who wouldn't, right? If you're, if you're like a SaaS tool, who wouldn't want to know where your vulnerabilities are? And, and what easier way to do that than to put it out to the world and say, hey, you're probably going to come across us or test us anyways. Here's how we want to hear about it, right? Yeah. So I think, yeah. So I remembered I remembered what it was I was going to talk about, but, but, it, but it doesn't, it's not relevant yet. So we'll come back to that. Um, it's uh, interesting. So um, you, you mentioned NIST 800-53. Rep four, which became Rep five, that actually happened about almost four years ago now, yeah. right? But FedRAMP came in and said, "Okay, we're good. We have the parameters we need." Yeah, so right on time, right? About three years later, right? Yeah. So if you were following eight hundred fifty three, you were probably aligned to it, but you weren't required to under FedRAMP. And now there's new revision. There's new update to revision five that's coming out. Um, and so, um, anyways, let's talk specifically about that use case. So there's RA5 enhancement 11. Um, I think you had a blog about that recently, or I forget what it was, but I, can you unpack the essence of that new NIST control with Rev5? Like what happens? Yeah. So this was one of those examples where compliance could help be a thought leader and, and kind of promote that use case. So to your point, Rev5 goes into full effect next year so that anyone who's beholden to FedRAMP, regardless of, regardless of your impact level, you're beholden to this new set of controls. And one of the controls that got applied to everyone, regardless, so low, medium, high, all got this new control is, or enhancement rather, is RA511. So RA5 is that you're actively managing and looking for vulnerabilities. Uh, within or within your platform, like within your tech stack, yeah. And then enhancement eleven basically is an add-on to that new as part of Rev five that says you will establish a public reporting mechanism for receiving vulnerabilities. 
Well, that that what we call in the bug bounty space a VDP, a vulnerability disclosure policy. So it's now mandating that you will have a vulnerability disclosure policy. And so with with HackerOne, we are also beholden to FedRAMP. We have a FedRAMP authorization. So for us, it was rather easy to adopt because we already had this and we, we sell this this product. So um, but yeah, we put out a blog post uh, myself and another one of my coworkers, Kayla Underkoffler, put out a blog post called uh are you ready for the nist the new nist control around public disclosures perfect yeah that would be awesome um and we just said look this is what we do and here are some of the best practices that we recommend regardless of what platform you're on or, or if you do it yourself these are the things that we think should be in your vdp and this is and as you know, sometimes guidance is slow to come out on how you're going to assess a control. And we wanted to get ahead of that because we had the same questions. And so we put out this, this post that goes through some of the best practices. So like, for example, it should be very easy to find on your website. Like it should be part of your navigation content or it should be on the footer. Somebody should easily be able to say, oh, look, there's their there's their policy. Let me go click on that and see what rules I need to follow. So that's that's the first thing. Um, the second is a declaration of your commitment to the process. If you if you do this and you follow these rules, we agree to respond to you within X amount of time frame. We agree to follow these standards. If there's a compensation mechanism involved, here's how we'll compensate you. That's another um, declaration of assets. You know, and in a FedRAMP context, it should probably be your your entire environment. Um, your authorization boundary, right. Or, you know, and then maybe some more. Or maybe there's reasons why you need to de-scope something, a third party for whatever reason. We try to recommend that you don't. Do, yes, and that's all and that's all in there. And so one other thing I want to hit on, because this is really key to the industry um, before we move on, is... And a lot of jurisdictions globally, finding vulnerabilities and submitting them is a gray area at best, meaning it could be criminalized for you just doing that, even if it's with good intent. And so one of the things we want to see in a policy is what they call a safe harbor provision, which is the company basically saying, look, if you follow our policy, you do what we ask you to do, we will agree not to prosecute you, not to come after you because we want these submissions. And so we will legally not, there won't be any repercussions for you. So that's another one that we see. So anyways, we put this blog post out there and it got some good feedback because you're not seeing a lot of good guidance. And then we actually um, later partnered with Shellman, uh, who, who we've historically used as our auditors, a big FedRAMP auditor. And we said, hey, what do you think about this? Did we, are we kind of in the right space? You're going to be assessing these as an auditor. What do you think? And they gave us some really good feedback and ended up adding on to our blog post that we kind of re-released with their commentary. So we would go through and put bullet points of best practices. And then they would say, and here's how we feel about it as an auditor. Like, here's what we're going to look for. And then, so then we re-released that with, with their permission. It was great. Shout out to auditors. That's how I got my start into cyber was as an auditor. It's it's such a great experience. And because and as an auditor, you're kind of 
so for people just getting into it, you're kind of sheltered in your team. You're, you don't know anything. And so you have a senior and a manager and people who are experienced that are kind of uh, a buffer between you and the client, but you get all this cool experience. And over time, you are able to have those value add conversations. And so it's kind of cool, like with what you're describing, Blake, with HackerOne and the innovations you're having with, you know, this disclosure, like what do you want to do, I, I, this thought leadership, you kind of, the, the companies that lead out tend to kind of manifest what actually gets adopted ultimately. Right. Like for example, uh, now it's kind of outdated, I would say, but the whole thing around, let's just set up a bastion host and we'll make it a, like a hard crunchy shell around the network and we'll, we'll make, put all of the controls on this one thing here and make sure that before you get into the environment, you go authenticate on this host. But now that kind of highlights ZT, you know, zero trust, right? And so that's yeah. maybe antiquated, but it's interesting to see the changes that came into Rev Rev 5, you know, that were like saying, no, you need to do best notes because that's what everybody else does, right? You know, and so it's really weird. So sometimes policy does lag. Um, in fact, we were actually surprised one time, one of my mistakes when we were doing our text ramp offering, because we like automate all that documentation. Um, we were like, why is, what's this bug with text ramp that we have? We, we, had, we had built out the whole entire function. We're like, okay, it's ready to go. We didn't realize that the catalog they were using was actually Rev5. So text ramp actually adopted <laughs> the Rev5 before everybody else. And so we're like, wait, what's going on in Texas? So, so they, we didn't know that. And I was like shipping out these things. I'm like, why is it missing this control? It's so weird. And I'm like, that doesn't seem like the right thing. Cause with the transition from rev four to rev five, some of the changes were like, oh, let's move this from C to part G <laughs> and, let's, and let's just take away this requirement altogether. And so it wasn't, it's just kind of a tricky change. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oscal. And ultimately that's what dictates what, what, so what's cool about OSCAL is you have a standard by which you can base all of your compliance reporting. So it doesn't matter if it's NIST 800-53, it could be NIST 800-171, it could be PCI, it could be SOC 2, it could be anything, and you can have what we call a catalog. So OSCAL starts with uh, control catalogs, and then from there you have different profiles which implement different portions of the catalog, and you can modify parameters you can modify the control. You can modify the guidance. So we're pretty in deep on how that's how that's set up. But it was a really great thing with what Dr. Yorga and Alexander had put together, right, AJ? They put together a standard and team. There's so many there on the OnScout team. They're great. But they put a standard that we could use for where we have our app over here, which is really awesome for organizing security. And then we'll automate all the reporting based on OSCAL. Then from there, we can automate any kind of deliverable, whether that's spreadsheets or Word documents, whatever it is. Right. So it's really nice. But we were surprised that TextRamp had done revision five. We we're like, oh. And so that was like, that had gone through all changes where I call this is how we're designing. I'm like, oh, oh, these are actually Rev5 mappings. And so it was an easy fix once we saw it. But we were just like, what the? We were surprised that they had adopted it so well, earlier. You, you get you had jumped on. I mean, Paramify. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was kind of built on this vision of like really early adoption of OSCAL. So like a programmatic way of building out documentation that was before a lot of copy paste. I mean, I mean, we go back, right? Like, I mean, like 
I always look at security as let's build out capabilities. Let's not worry about compliance. Have an inventory of capabilities. So things like you know your 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 red team, your red team assessments, uh, your SSO, your multi-factor authentication, in, enabling encryption in transit. You know those are those are capabilities, and um, it's really important that those capabilities are implemented by experts, people who actually know. Because in compliance and security, let's face it, if we're like running a whole program. We're an inch deep and we're a mile wide in terms of our expertise. We don't know everything. You need, you need your cadre of, of security experts or you need your operational experts. You need your DevOps experts. You even need HR, honestly, that understands the laws and regulations around, you know, the things around personnel security. You know, those, you need a cadre of people that are able to implement those things. And so whatever is good for security is going to be good for compliance, and then we can automate, you know, the documentation and give you all your time back. That's that's kind of where we're at. Um, and so it was really, uh, it started with Adobe, right, Common Controls, when, you know, Prashan Nabi and Rahat and all of us and Matt Carroll and all these other great security leaders, we had thought like, hey, and Zosh, sorry, Zosh, mentioned you. Yeah, uh, we have all these great, uh, capabilities that you know had been built at Adobe, and we're like, well, let's just call it that. And then on the back end, we'll we'll map all the compliance requirements because what ultimately what you're describing is a security capability. Yeah. And then when OSCAL came out, I'm like, okay, great. Now we have a standard with that met that paradigm. It was like a perfect match yeah. for us. You you mentioned Adobe and and name drop some like some pretty awesome people yeah pretty awesome people yeah like dude, i i always look at adobe adobe for me was one of these moments like when you hear about xerox labs and all these like interesting innovations and people and i think maybe even adobe was if i recall like came out of that like all these amazing people that got together and were doing some really interesting things and then later go off to do other really amazing interesting like I look back at all the people we work with at Adobe and where they've ended up, and I'm like, wow! Like when you trace that back, it was like we were all together at Adobe. It was a great time. So like one of my, I think my takeaways from that is like when you like enjoy those moments because you're not always going to be with those people, and then they're going to go off and do stuff. But like maintain those relationships, right? Because totally. you know, and that may Keaton may that may be paramify for you, right? Like yeah. for me, it was it was just great to see like where everybody ended up and like that's how we knew like we would not be here if it wasn't for our time you know together at adobe yeah you know, those guys built a great company yeah. you know they a great company that was all focused on people and their success and it kind of creates this little coral reef of like you know yeah. of innovation and creativity and all working together we all have a shared common goal and uh you know it, it is special Right, it is special what was created there. Um, I want to just, sorry, I don't want to go. I, it would have been better to talk about it earlier, but you had mentioned the advantages, right, of of startups, of of younger companies that have all of these awesome companies and tools to take advantage of today. Uh, I was talking to Scott Pack, who's also, you know, and Julia, yeah, Julie Connect, right? I think they work together, right? But Scott was telling me that at at Netflix, um, they 
they were one of the early adopters of cloud, right? And so for them, they have a lot of legacy stuff that, you know, they have a lot of work to do to kind of build, to take advantage of the, the new innovations that are coming out. So smaller companies, you have an advantage, you know, for building great security, like quickly. Um, you can do it right from the very get-go. Um, you don't have to be an expert in everything, but you do need you do need a guide. It for sure. Well, it's funny you, you see when you mentioned cloud. Do you remember? So this is probably fourteen or fifteen years ago. I'm dating myself. Uh, where cloud was the new thing, and everybody was afraid of cloud, and like, well, what does that mean? What data am I storing in the cloud? I mean, I remember at Adobe, like there was a function that got built out because people were so, customers were so concerned about, well, I'm sending you Adobe data. What does that mean? What What do you mean the cloud? It feels like, does it almost feel like we're now back in that cycle again with AI of like, well, what does that mean? Uh, it's really interesting to almost kind of watch history repeat itself because it like AI is the new cloud or like, okay, well, what does it mean when I send you my data and how are you using that data, right? Like we're going through this cycle again of of adoption, it feels like, for AI. Except this one's accelerated yes. super fast. We, we were just talking about that. You know, you have the Industrial Revolution, which was like hundreds of years, agricultural thousands of years. You have Industrial Revolutions, just a couple of hundred years. And then you have the Information Age with data centers. And now you have this cloud thing and now it's AI. And it's just, it's probably like a 10 year, like a decade cycle. I we're going to see, with that. you know, uh, anyway, it's such an exciting time. So we have so many opportunities to do things right. So it's a great time to be in a startup. It's, it's a great time, man. Yeah, I, I would agree. And it'll be interesting to see, I mean, I know it's a little bit of a buzzword, what use cases come out of this new AI wave. I mean, if we're talking about like, what startups were able to do with cloud adoption and how quickly they were able to get spun up. Okay, then what does, to your point, like what does AI do? Um, I was having a conversation with with one of our colleagues actually, and he was telling me that he was hearing about another company who uh, even from a compliance standpoint is using AI to respond to those questionnaires. Like they've taken all their historical database of responses, trained the AI, and then are using that to respond. So like, is it going to get to the point where AI is assessing you and AI is responding? So it's just two AI engines, like hashing it out on like the question and answers, right? And then returning a, an assessment. Why not, man? Yeah, we're totally, we're totally all about that, right? And we've seen that a lot. A lot of people are doing that. Makes a lot of sense. Feels like, yeah, makes a lot of sense. So that's one area. What are, what are some areas you think are going to see some big innovations when it comes to AI and security? That's a good that's a good question. And I've thought a lot about this. I I'm not an AI expert, and so I'm probably just like scraping the tip of the iceberg a little bit, but going back to that, I almost laugh when I think about this. If like with pen testing and and like red team blue team are those essentially going to be two AI engines that are duking it out, you know, of like, okay, we got this one refined, really good to do an attack. We have this one refined really well. You know, it's like the EDR plus, right, of like, this one's really good at defending. Let's watch and see who wins, you know, who's going to win this battle. Yeah, I think that's going to be 
really interesting to me. Um, I think it. you've probably said this on one of your podcasts before where it's like, I, I and, and I'm going to misquote you so you can correct me because you're right here, of like, AI is not going to replace jobs. It's going to help people like do a better job or replace a job. Yeah, it won't replace all jobs, right? Yeah. You will absolutely be replaced by people who use AI. Yeah, Kind of like yes. uh, those wizards, right, that can cast those spells, right, you know? They're essentially, you know, who's who's an adept wizard with AI, and absolutely, you you got a lot lot of opportunity. I I do think we were talking about it with next level folks that the paradigm I am I guess the most comfortable with is like you have a C three PO right that can help guide you because I think the danger with when it comes to security and AI is a lot can go wrong. You, if it's making decisions, right? If it's making decisions, we've seen it in the past with uh, maybe cruder versions of AI that are less mature it, on the financial markets, right? What it can do, it can do, it can make really stupid decisions because it thinks this. I'm like, oh, I've seen this before. Let's do this, and then you have the AIs, yes, that all make a decision. So, didn't the SEC just even come out like one of the commissioners and say, like, yeah, we expect there's probably going to be a crash that comes from a AI decision, something along those lines. That would be amazing. Hopefully, we can catch it. Yeah. By the yeah, dip, man. <laughs> yeah, by, but it's, that's awesome. Yeah, man. Um, I, I'm super excited. I, I think, yeah, the, the one security case is you have this, this uh, security bot that's like turning everything off, <laughs> like shutting things off, which yeah. it feels like has happened already. But doesn't it feel very movie esque, though? Like, and yeah. that's where I'm like, I may, I don't know. Maybe that's we're just scratching the surface. I'm sure there are some more interesting ideas than that kind of surface level, but definitely feels like we're going to be going there with like, oh, my AI is faster than your AI, and we'll see who wins, you know? like, Oh, my gosh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of envy, man. But there's also a lot of opportunity, right? We, we always talk about, like, the next generation that's coming up. I feel like there's going to be so much opportunity to go innovate and i'm really curious to see like what happens right totally yeah man this has been so awesome blake okay so you're talking about movies um this is a book so who is uh who is your favorite member of the fellowship and why my favorite we're talking about lord of the rings favorite member of the fellowship the fellowship okay yeah yeah okay yeah 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 who is my favorite member? Even if you don't know the names, right? That's okay. I think you do, but like, yeah. I, I want to say Aragon. Is that is that a cop out answer? Because he no, that's he's mine. Like, uh, that's that's the, like everyone thinks it. no, no, no. That not true. Like yeah, so Aragorn, and then my my runner up is Samwise, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, because he's gritty and he, he kind of just does it. But like Aragorn, yeah. I think both Strider. of them are very unselfish. Um, I like. Aragon because of his leadership like here was a guy who was like just trying to stay in the shadows and do his own thing but then when when time came it's like okay you need to step up now he did and he said okay uh, let's we got to see this to the end regardless of where he was on that journey because he wasn't always with the ring you know he wasn't always in the spotlight but he's okay fine they're over there we got to do our thing over here. He set aside the Strider. 
became the king he was born to be. And, you know, you know, like you said, yeah. Yeah, man. That's why Aragorn wins all the time. He's the best, right? The best. I mean, you can't, I think the whole point of it was that there's always different dynamics to a group. And for a group to be successful, you have to have those different. So they're all important in their own right. But I think that's probably the one I gravitate towards. He likes Legolas because the way he mounts the horse, right? We're talking about where he does that like three sixty yeah, yeah. twirl and then somehow ends up yeah, on a horse. Yeah, it makes no sense. Yeah, even the clip when you rewatch that, you're like, how did they, how did they do this? Like, where, where were you going with this? We were just watching that. Yeah, it's like I don't get it. Is this a this is a team activity? Let's. No, I mean it's just. I don't know. We we probably need to switch up the questions a little bit, but it's always interesting to see who's, you know. Anyway, man. All right. Well, yeah. Um, so, Blake, uh, what do you think? What What's the future for you? You said uh, you, you have a mentor. What, what are you looking to do next steps? Well, so I lead security compliance today. So uh, I think the next level would be to lead an entire security organization. So We'll see. I've I've given myself five five years maybe, and what you know, you just you have a goal. You see what happens as you go along that goal, you know. But at least you have a point that you can look towards. So I mean, yeah, maybe we'll rewatch this in five years. And yeah, man, it's always some hindsight. Yeah, yeah. And then real quick before uh, we end the podcast, I I'm curious if you have any advice for someone who wants to get into cyber. Yeah. That's a good question, I think, because everybody's path is so different. Um, And now you have education that's catching up, I think, to it. But what I always recommend is for people that are looking to get experience. Everybody wants somebody who has experience, but the question always becomes, well, it's kind of a catch-22. How do you get experience if everybody wants experience? So what I usually recommend is within your current organization and your current network, find ways to get experience. So if you work outside of security for your comp- company, approach them and say, hey, I, I want to learn, I want to contribute. Is there a way, do you have a role opening up? Or can I just use some of my current time, maybe work that out with both leadership, right? Of like, can I five to 10 hours a week help you guys? Get that experience, get it on your resume, and then there you go. And then and then you're ready for the next jump but it's always easier to do it within your sphere of influence where they know you you know them they're you know it's like finding a job you usually find a job within your network of of people that you know it's same thing work through it that way and then once you once you're in you're in you're part of this you know unique eclectic group of cybersecurity professionals you know yeah man Thanks, Blake. Hey, thank you guys. Appreciate it. This was awesome.